0: Is this the hottest that Sigourney Weaver has ever been in a movie? Or is it just because I'm old now?
1: Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of with me, as always, is Keith Foster from San Diego, California,
0: and you are Cassidy Robinson. You are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains.
1: And by the time this episode comes out, we will be in the beginnings of the spooky season.
0: Hell yeah!
1: We're going to talk. My body about, is ready. Your body is a wonderland for ghosts. <laughs> Uh, we're going to be talking about The Haunting in Venice, the new film by Kenneth Branagh in the Agatha Christie series that he's been doing. And at the end of the program, we will be reviewing Ang Lee's The Ice Storm and talk about the dread and horror of suburban angst in the 70s.
0: (laughs) You, You know, um... I mean, we'll get to the review, but uh, it was way more of a fall movie than I expected, and damn, those seventies fall fits, yeah,
1: <laughs>
0: I was like Elijah Wood is serving in this movie
1: <laughs> all right yeah hold hold your
0: thoughts on that. <laughs> um, I'm just saying every out I'm, it's purely costume design
1: this will this will be out. Um, the first week of October. So, have you started to christen your media consumption with uh spooky season stuff, or have you dipped your toes?
0: Um,
1: outside of podcasts,
0: yes, kind of. Um, I started a little early this year. I don't know if it was kind of for Halloween. Um, uh, me and some friends watched *The Evil Dead Rise*, which came out earlier this year. Mm-hmm. We're uh, we're going to uh, Halloween horror nights at um, Universal Studios in LA, and they are doing an Evil Dead Rise maze like Spook House. And um, yeah, so we watched that. Um, I actually watched. I, I think it's gonna be an Evil Dead year. I watched the um the I think it was the twenty thirteen remake, uh reboot the um
1: Fetty Alvarez one. Yeah,
0: know. yeah. Uh so yeah, I've been I've been getting I'm ready for the spooks. Yeah, I would say you're you're fully in. I mean I uh,
1: yeah. I uh I watched some commentary stuff on Barbarian. Okay. Um and I would like to watch that again this this fall or this uh this October. Um yeah. I, I'm not sure Di- where at it Disney is
0: released, it. release that uh physical Blu-ray at mm-hmm. Disney.
1: Yeah, well I would like them to to release the rights at the very least so somebody like a shop Factory or something could release it. Um, that would be cool. I would like that. And uh most recently, uh this isn't uh I would say this is like adjacent to Spooky. Okay. okay. But have you ever listened to the music of Ethel Kane?
0: Uh, it does not trigger me.
1: Okay, she's a singer songwriter. And she had an album out last year called Preacher's Daughter. She's from the Deep
0: South, and she has... I mean, sold. I, I'm i already, like, you know me, I'm a sucker for, like, gothic, folky, bluesy stuff.
1: Yes, I would say that she's very much in that camp of, like, the southern gothic is sort Hell of yeah. her, her obsession. I mean, she has songs that are just, like, like it, the preacher's daughter is a is a concept album about a, about a uh a girl who runs away from home um and ends up on the road with a dangerous man and may it. or may not end in cannibalism um okay, so it's bones and all <laughs> she she wrote a song for the movie actually <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah, that is kind of They're perfect. like,
0: damn. Uh our movie is just this album. We got to <laughs> uh, we got to cross promote synergy.
1: <laughs> right. But she, you know, she's really uh she it's very kind of haunting, lots of like a dreamy, reverby type stuff. And sometimes it can be really lush and beautiful, and sometimes it can be really creepy and demonic. What's
0: the what- What's the meme um the Toby Maguire meme like you don't have to sell me on it i've ar- like i'm already in <laughs> Uh i would
1: i would definitely recommend that album i was watching somebody uh who was talking it up and uh they they were explaining sort of the story of the album and i i went and listened to it and yeah it was it's on top of being very good music it's very moving it's also kind of creepy and haunting and lives in that sort of Nick Cavey sort of universe. Let's go ahead and just start talking about a haunting in Venice. So uh, as stated before, this is the film by Kenneth Branagh, the third in a series he's done uh, starting in 2017 with a remake of murder on the Orient Express. Uh, Last year he released uh, death of the Nile
0: yeah, the, and then, the most canceled cast of all time. <laughs> Is it? I don't even remember. Uh, uh, both Army Hammer and Russell Brand are in that movie.
1: Oh, speaking of cannibals,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, and uh, this year he's released A Haunting in Venice, which takes place uh, sometime after hi- uh, the the heroics of. Detective Hercule Poirot, um, which is the main character of these Agatha, Agatha Christie novels.
0: I was also in a production of Murder on the Orient Express a couple of years ago. Um, right. Uh, yeah. So he's he's this famous, a Belgian detective um, who got famous because of these Agatha Christie novels, and then they started getting adapted into plays and now, and then eventually movies.
1: Right. Um, the, I, I know Sidney Lamette did a version in the 70s or 80s mm-hmm. of Murder on the Orient Express, and then uh, the remake. I think they, they, these movies must have done pretty well for them to have made three of them.
0: Yeah, I mean, Kenneth Branagh has been around. For he a while, some right? Yeah, yeah, and and I I am pretty sure he's a producer on all these movies. So like, I think I think they're just kind of his sort of retirement passion project, and they're you know they're making enough money to justify it. Um, but I I pretty sure uh, I I can't speak to this one, but I'm pretty sure the other two were were. Pretty- I, I, pretty big like successes like murder on the inner express i think made quite a bit of money
1: yeah i think there might be some diminishing returns per movie but i know also he had released the film belfast which was like his personal mm-hmm. biography that uh was uh, nominated for best picture somewhere in the making of these films as well so yeah um but anyway the story of this one is this takes place sometime after uh, Hercule Poirot retires as a detective. Mm -hmm. And he goes to live in Venice and uh, feed the birds and work on his garden and tries to stay away from all things mystery related until (laughs) uh, uh, a young author played by Tina Fey... Kind of playing a version of an Agatha Christie. I don't know if Christie sort of wrote herself in this story, but that's what it, very much what it feels like.
0: Um, uh, I, I, I'm not familiar with the source material, but um, I think that is a pretty good estimation.
1: <laughs> yeah. So she, this is a person who's written a series of uh, mystery novels based on the... Crimes that uh, Pirro has solved and she wants to sell more books. So she wants to get him excited about the idea of solving another mystery. She tells him she knows of a place in Venice where around Halloween, these kids like to come and congregate, but there's also been murders supposedly taken place there. And then there's a medium Mrs. Reynolds, played by Michelle Yeoh, who is supposed to come and do a seance that night. And she wants to bring uh, Perot there to witness what's happening and see if he can figure it out or debunk it. Or maybe even have him convinced that there is life after death.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah. something
1: actually supernatural going on
0: she comes to the prim- she comes to him with the premise of you need to debunk this medium because i'm the smartest person i i know and i can't figure out what she's doing so i right. need you to do it uh or is she just legit like he's he's kind of there as uh the scully like you, you know the skeptic who is is meant to disprove her with science
1: right And he he is very much a staunch skeptic and atheist and and finds no reason to believe that there should be anything else. But even he starts to question himself when he starts to see weird things or hear weird things or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And throughout the night, there is uh, foul play that occurs. And uh, Pirro locks everybody inside, everybody who could be a suspect. And starts to question them one by one, like he would his old mysteries, uh, when he was not retired, and uh, tries to figure out, get to the bottom of what's actually going on and who's a suspect and who isn't. So this yes. is a you know a classic who done
0: it, and and the Poirot mysteries are kind of the template for that, right? Like sure, like he yeah. as a character is. This traveling detective who solves mysteries—he's kind of Sherlock Holmesian, um, you know—which right. later gets translated into a character like Batman. So it's just like this is just one of his cases.
1: And most recently, and, the character Benoit Blanc from the Night yeah, Owl movies are very much based, sort of on this this archetype.
0: Absolutely, um, this detective who done it She Wrote, Murder I Mystery, mean,
1: yeah, I mean, Columbo—all
0: of it, yeah. It's it's archetypal. Poirot as a character is one of the reasons it is archetypal. Like, he's been around that long. Right. That, that he is one of the blueprints. I'm not going to say the only one, because there was obviously... This is a whole genre. Uh, but him as a yeah. character is one of the more famous in this... Yeah, mili- I
1: would say between Agatha Christie and Arthur Conan Doyle, they really kind of set this... Yeah, this up as a as a uh, tradition, and then For sure. the, the early serials that were made sort of based on those type of this type of pulp narrative,
0: and and now we're in a little bit more of a post modern take on it, but um, but this is as a movie as a structure goes very traditional. It's very yeah.
1: I would say there's nothing uh, very post modern about this approach. Which is no.
0: This is yeah
1: actually commendable. I, I I I sort of appreciated that. I think in a post-Knives Out world, it would mm-hmm. be really easy for Brana or whoever's directing this to play with the tropes more or yeah, to well, I, wink at I the think- camera more. And there's a little bit of humor here, especially from Tina Fey, who seems to be the major source of comedic relief insofar but as if- that there is comedic relief.
0: But it's not ironic humor. It's never Never. it's never at the the sake of uh, the character and the genre. It's always within the context of the reality they've established. It's there's yeah, it's not really winking at the camera or anything like that. And I. Yeah, I, I mean, if we're getting into it, that's one of the things I appreciate about it is it's not done with a cynical eye. No. It is very much like we are going to try to honor this genre and play it as straight as possible.
1: But if you look at Brana and his history in film, mm-hmm. that's sort of what he does. Like he, he first made his name being one of the premier guys to do Shakespeare adaptations for film, he did a version mm-hmm. of Hamlet.
0: His directorial debut was Henry V. Yeah. Um, He did Hamlet, Love Labor's Lost. Mm -hmm. Um, I I mean, As You Like It. Damn, yeah. He's done some Shakespeare. Uh, This isn't Shakespeare, but he also did a version of Frankenstein. um,
1: Right. That plays it it
0: very earnestly, very.
1: And he also does, he, he kind of does everything from the perspective of like a theater kind of guy, like even if you look at his yes. adap- his his adaptation of the first Thor movie for Marvel, they brought him on because they wanted him to bring that sort of earnestness and that Shakespearean heft to the gravitas, the, the yeah, to the uh mythology
0: of the Norse gods um I mean, that one is a little more uh tongue in cheek than I think he is he typically goes for, but sure but yes it it, yeah. it is this idea of you know he plays all the Norse mythology stuff as straight as you possibly could have in like 2010 or whatever.
1: <laughs> right. yeah I mean obviously that's a much bigger project in a for higher gig. so he he didn't quite have as much creative control as he would on other projects. Like, mm-hmm. say, these movies are or Belfast or, or his Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. But that is kind of what he does. His version of Frankenstein, you know, very much Victorian Gothic, same as this film.
0: Well, there, there's, a, there's a real – this appreciation of literature, right, within yeah. his work. And, and, and theater. Uh, and theater nerd. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, he – I get it. You know, if <laughs> – how many fucking I I have a theater degree. How many people do I know if they were given a mass budget would be like, no, we got to get this right. We got to get this like as close to the source material as possible. And and that's what I mean. Like he, I, it feels like this is just sort of a retirement project for him. Is like, well, I don't want to quit, but I'm just gonna. I've earned the money and the goodwill to so just keep making fucking Poirot movies till I'm dead.
1: Yes, I agree with you, but there's, it's kind of an interesting two-handed situation here because on one hand, he is, it feels sort of like he's making these movies for himself because who is this for, really? Is there a big clamoring for adaptations of H- Hercule Poirot? I mean, you, one might think, given the success of the Knives Out movies and whatnot, that there could be some sort of appetite for this.
0: Well, but um, but I think he's also, if if that is the case, he is helping to drive that, right? Like, Sure, and he knows like, that
1: his name is going to bring that, and he has a vision for what he would do for it. But, but yeah. yes, so there's that aspect of it where it's like, there's these very traditional whodunit mysteries that are not. They're stylish, but not particularly flashy, and they're not mm-hmm. big budget. You know, capes and spandex and robots exploding affairs. This is uh, somewhat counterintuitive to the to what we would think of as a successful blockbuster series. His mm-hmm. approach to it, okay, is. Purely through the exploration uh, and appreciation of genre for its own sake. This, you know, there's... there's a, I've heard some people make this distinction, and it's mostly in jest. But, you know, the difference between a movie and a film... Like I've sure. heard uh, Steven Stodeberg say, like, you know, when he made the Shea movies, uh, or when when he made the Shea projects, those were films. And when he made No Sudden Move, that was a movie. Or Contagion was a movie. You know, and he's joking, <laughs> sure. obviously. But Brahma's approach to this is, I'm making movies. This is for popcorn.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it, it is... It is an appreciation of the literature and the source, but it is...
1: It's not meant high to, art.
0: It is meant to be as palatable and as, you know, multi-demographic as you can make something like this. It, it, it yeah. almost feels like a personal challenge of his to be like, I'm going to take this sort of, uh you know, something that could be considered this kind of dusty material and make it as pop as possible.
1: Yeah. Is there uh, still sort of a, a pop culture cachet
0: in yeah, because these what movies movie are
1: considered pulp.
0: Yes, and because these movies are slick and stylish and and star-studded. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah. I I think after watching *Haunting in Venice*, I went back and revisited *Death on the Nile*. Mm-hmm. Um, I have yet to watch *Murder on the Owner Express*. It was I couldn't watch it when I was doing the production. It was too weird. And then, um, but whatever. I'll get to it eventually. But Death on the Nile is so big and flashy. And he is, with that one specifically, he is trying to make it a blockbuster. And didn't appreciate how much he was kind of restraining that instinct in this movie until after I saw Death on the Nile. Like, if you watch them... Concordantly, you can see like, oh, he learned some some lessons. Like, there is some stuff that, that like an overuse use of CGI and weird set pieces, and this feels very restrained and very sort of back to form and naturalistic. And, yeah, yeah, and I appreciated that much more after seeing how kind of big he can try to make it.
1: So, Death on the Nile. Now, this is the only one of the three I've seen so far. So, Mm. Death on the Nile was kind of like his Temple of Doom.
0: Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen Murder on the Orient Express, but I think that is a pretty apt metaphor.
1: I say that as a Temple of Doom uh, apologist, but...
0: Oh, Uh, I mean, yeah, Temple of Doom's a lot of fun, but no one will say that's the best Indiana Jones. No, Uh, no, certainly not. Yeah, Temple, or, um... it's a little overproduced and a
1: little too into itself.
0: Yes, that is absolutely Death on the Nile. Like, it is, it is as big as it can be, it's bombastic, it has just all of these strange sort of effects shots that you would not need for a chamber piece, which, like, these are literally chamber pieces. That's where the term comes from. Um, So, and again, I didn't notice this when I was watching Haunting of Venice, but then upon checking out Death on the Nile, I was like, oh, okay, he was pulling it back. This is sort of a, a... a back to basic I, I think Death of the Nile was maybe unfairly maligned. Um it has a pretty weak first act, but once it gets into the murder mystery stuff, it it, you know, it it's similar to this. And that's when you can see the real directorial style coming through. Yeah. Um now
1: I will say given the fact that this movie does have uh limited staging yeah and and limited sets i mean very lavish sets but you know not uh it's not a other than a few wide shots we get of venice and things like that for the most part it, it's all one setting that the chamber piece should be
0: well and, and and it's it's but yeah it's not driven by s- these sort of forced set pieces right like it's Right. For the most part, in one location. And it's um, a lot of
1: dialogue and it, it, and it's a lot of people sort of standing in rooms, uh, trying to figure things out and, and whatnot. I mean, there's, there's a few kind of horror set, horror movie set pieces, but for the most yeah. part, it's, it's all about the investigation. Um, but I will say, given that it doesn't feel stagey. In a, th- in a theater sort of way. Like, he does a really good job mm-hmm. of doing interesting camera work or uh, finding interest, like, paranoid camera, POV shots, um, you know, well, kind of placing I, I things where you wouldn't uh, uh, initially think how to stage a certain dialogue set piece just to keep things activated and – keep things visual yeah. the lighting is, is, is and color correction is really nice and the movie looks pretty good
0: I, I mean i mean so does death on the nile for the except for some um some fucking questionable digital effects and green screen shit um but this one i, I appreciated because it like i said it didn't have that and it felt like i liked his approach to this as If Hercule Poirot was in a horror movie. And I I think that is, I mean, that was kind of the selling point for me. Okay, well, it's a skeptic in a haunting scenario. And we're going to treat it like a horror movie. But we're also going to be true to the detective genre. And let that play out. I'm not going to say dueling genres, but like... Letting them come together,
1: right? I mean, there's always a, a an aspect to to the who done it, especially murder mysteries of the macabre and of the sure. gothic. You know,
0: well, and a, and a lot of early slashers have a sort of murder mystery <laughs> uh, element to them. That that, that but yeah. then you know the focus sort of shifts more to the violence and the. um uh, uh
1: exploitation yeah.
0: yeah uh and this it, movie's kind of pre
1: all that yeah so but 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 I mean you know when it comes to like the the Halloween uh setting and the uh the milieu of it all and you know even like some uh possession scenes if you will or what have you the movie Plays around with yeah. with the macabre and with the
0: horror. Even this, if this it's movie not
1: has directly a horror film,
0: this movie has vibes for days, and I actually yeah. think that this would be like this is a great movie for people who like Halloween stuff, but but aren't into horror, or, you know, but are too afraid of like the big scares or yeah. or gore fest or stuff like that. Like, I, I think there's something cool about that. And oftentimes when I think of murder mystery as a genre, I like, you know, I want the vibes, like give me the vibes. And oftentimes it actually under delivers. So I think there's a lot that the setting is doing for this. I think that there's a lot that the premise of... Is this actually a haunting or Mm -hmm. a murder mystery? Just really feeds into both genres really well and makes it a lot of fun.
1: Now, with that said, I love everything about this movie except for the nuts and bolts of it.
0: (laughs) No, I agree with you. I Like, the actual plot of it is... Kind of predictable and cumbersome. It's little, and it's a little rote, yeah, yeah, and,
1: and, and, and right I mean I I won't say that I had it figured out from the very beginning, but it wasn't too difficult to figure out at least who were the key players were It's
0: like it doesn't blow your mind once the reveal happens, you're like, oh, that's kind of it
1: well, I the reason why. I feel like this genre is really difficult to impress me. I mean, for somebody, you know, people who love reading this type of fiction, this is probably going to just be heaven for them. But the reason why, in general, I don't really run towards this um, is because it's often, you know, even like your Raymond Chandler stuff or whatever, it's always red red herring, red herring, red herring, red herring... They actual might, clue. Yeah, they might give Red you herring, like
0: actual clue. Yeah, yeah. The,
1: but but the actual clues never. They they also don't give you enough leverage as a as a viewer yeah. to to piece it together as you're watching it. So you feel like you're doing all this work with the movie to try and figure things out, and then in the last big reveal, you know, the big speech, the monologue of the detective, he lays out. Like this huge dossier of information, and that's like
0: it's technically there, but you as a viewer would have no way to actually figure out the mystery,
1: right? So, I mean, to me, there's no point in it as a mystery because you're you would have to have known what was happening for years and weeks prior to the events of the story. There's nothing, there's not enough there to draw me in, and I think certain modern noirs and mysteries and things like that do a little better of a job of giving you just enough to keep you included as a, as a viewer into the mystery. Whereas this is just like, well, here's, you know, this huge monologue where I lay out this whole other plot that has nothing to do with what you just watched the last two hours.
0: I I will say I think that is one of the reasons Murder on the Orient Express as a piece um, has lasted, whereas a lot of this other sort of genre stuff falls off because I do feel like you're a lot more rewarded as the yeah. the viewer or reader as detective. Um, because I, I I feel like the mystery is laid out in a way that is a little bit more satisfying. um, whereas in this case, and similar with death on the nile i I agree it's like it's kind of a letdown once you have it all laid out in front of you. It's like, oh, that's it. There's all this build up and that uh, okay, and i I think that is one of the reasons why it as a postmodern genre has been more effective uh, you know in the case of like the knives out mysteries he they can specifically write to that they can they can right. build a climax that is meant for a modern sensibility whereas this is not you know the the story was meant you know as a pulp sort of dime novel reader mystery. And uh, through the adaptations, I think, you know, in this case, I agree with you. I think the actual plot of it is the weakest part.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think that there's enough stylistically
0: going on. Yeah. And, And all the characters and actors are great.
1: Yeah. The performances are all there and very strong, even if they're, you know doing way more than what they're asked to do on screen um i think all the actors are are bringing uh something interesting and uh you know brana himself as as perot is is a is fun and protagonist to yeah to follow especially in this context The, the actual plot of it all i'm I kind of don't care. Like, when it's all said and done, it's like, I guess, sure, you can write your own check at the end.
0: Yeah, and I I feel like that's kind of the problem with murder mystery, uh, like, as a genre, right? Like, that's... I used to do um, this show, an improvised show called Book Club, and we would, like, improvise different genres, and we did an improvised murder mystery, and literally the idea of it is at the end it could be anyone and you just have to justify it in a way and and when you're familiar enough with it as a genre like you can really see those pieces of oh yeah it literally can be anyone it's just you know occam's razor and i don't, I don't even know. think
1: that they re- i think this goes well beyond occam's razor i mean the the situation that they that they Used to justify everything in the story is like well beyond uh, the simplest
0: common denominator, you know. I mean, yes and no, yes and no. Uh, there's there's details that are more complicated, but if you really think about the concept of Ockram's Razor, this actually fits pretty pretty well. And I, I I get I don't want to say too much without. Uh, you know, a spoiler warning, but... Right, right, right. um, But I agree with you. This movie's stylish, it's cool, the plot, especially in the third act, is a little, eh, okay. Uh, Is
1: there any performances uh, that stood out to you beyond the leads? This
0: might be controversial. There's Um, a lot of people in the movie. There are a lot of people in the movie. This might be controversial um, for diehard Poirot stands. Uh, because Kenneth Branagh on paper does not fit the role, but a- after seeing two of the movies, I can see him acting his way into it, if that makes sense. And I think he earns it. I actually am very into his uh performances Poro. Oh. Um, yeah, I think he's great in it. I, no I really fun like Tina Fey. Um, yeah, I really a lot like. Of fun. Well, she, I, I like seeing her again, play something a little more earnestly. Like this is, this is an actual part um, that, you know, isn't just meant to be comedy and it's not just meant to be kind of making fun of itself. Like she, and I think she really leans into
1: that. Jamie Dornan was actually really good in the few scenes he had. I Um, agree. He was. There was a. He has one monologue in particular where he's really uh, pushing through a lot of emotion, and again, mm-hmm. it's like for such what? a silly movie, he's acting the hell out of it.
0: Well, and uh, <laughs> and yeah. that's something again. I I appreciate as as, and I I think that's a lot of the sort of source material genre stuff is yeah. these characters are well-written enough that if you have good actors, they will be able to bring stuff out of it in a way mm-hmm. that you don't get in a lot of ensemble casts anymore.
1: hmm I thought Jude Hill as the younger boy, the precocious kid yes. who's reading murder literature. <laughs> I um,
0: thought... I, I really he, liked him. He yeah,
1: was, He was fun, yeah. I, and, yeah, I...
0: Everybody else is I think reliable as yeah. always
1: and they do a good enough job at kind of giving everybody a a reason to be a suspect. Yeah. That it, it it keeps you guessing long enough, but I mean if you if you're pretty pretty in on the know on how these type of stories write themselves, your best guess is probably right. Um, well, also, I'll say that,
0: mm-hmm. like, the the mystery does need to unfold itself. And there are developments, there are twists there. You, you know, like, that's part of the genre. Yeah. So, you, you know, and and when he's interviewing people one on one, it's very easy to be like, oh, well, they fucking did it. And, and that's the point. Like, yeah, the, the writers want you to think that immediately.
1: Yeah, and again, I appreciate that even if, even if it's a little corny, or even if it's a little overdone, or uh, we're a little uh, annulled to this type of fiction in in our day and age, or whatever, uh, I, I appreciate that Brana wants to pluck us yeah. out from where we are and put us right back into when these stories were published and to just enjoy them on their own terms.
0: Absolutely. I I I appreciate that he's like he's such a nerd about it that he's like I want to treat this with as much respect as possible and and does it from this place of earnestness mm-hmm. uh that you can you know it can't help but win me over a little bit with that.
1: Mhm. Yeah, so I'm giving it a B
0: yeah. Uh no, I think B that's my score as well. Yeah. Um after seeing Death on the Nile, I would probably give it a B plus. Mm-hmm. Um but my initial reaction was a B. Uh I, I do think it is the better of the two. Mm-hmm. Um but I enjoyed both enough that I'm going to eventually check out Murder on the Orient Express.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll I'm interested enough now having seen this one to see the other two. But, you know, for people who haven't seen it yet, uh, unless you're already a big fan of this type of fiction, uh, I would say it's not a run-out-and-see kind of movie. Um, you well, could and, probably, and I, I would say, catch it on a matinee kind of vibe.
0: Also, I think the marketing might draw in a wrong audience, because it... it, it I think the marketing has leaned pretty heavily into the horror of it. And it's not a horror movie. It is a murder mystery that is directed like a horror movie. Yeah. So I I think some people, if you go to it with the wrong mindset, might be dissatisfied. Yeah.
1: It's not not like a scare a minute. But I will say that it's spooky. It's good it's, for it's this a, season, like, right now. Like, you know, I was glad I watched it.
0: It's it's a great kickoff to Halloween, but, like, if you're going expecting a ghost movie, you're not going to get that. Unless you do. Ooh.
1: <laughs> All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about the movie news. We have a few stories that have popped up the big story that I wanted to get to before uh, we get to a few smaller ones is that the WGA has uh, seemingly settled.
0: Uh, No, officially Uh, the strike. And as of the recording of this, the, the, I believe the contracts have been signed. Um, It is officially a done deal.
1: So I looked into some of the actual uh, details of what they were able to negotiate, and if you if you want to go back a few episodes and listen to our episode with Alec, he was talking about some of these things when they were still sort of being discussed. But these are sort of the terms that they've agreed to here on the WGA's website, WGA contract. 2023.org. It lays out their terms of agreement. So I'll try and get through these as quickly as possible. I probably won't read everything. But it says here, most MBA minimums will be increased by 5% on ratification of a contract, 4%. uh, On such and such date, 3.5%. So there's some... uh, Minimums, let's but let's, let's talk about some of the stuff that, that we were really yeah, interested I, in. Uh, artificial intelligence, I think that's a yeah. big one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, for, for how AI can be used in writing, it says AI can't write or rewrite literary material, and AI generated material will not be considered source material under the MBA meaning that AI-generated material can't be used to undermine a writer's credit or separate rights. Uh, A writer can choose to use AI when performing writing services if the company consents and provided that the writer follows applicable company policies, but the company can't require the writer to use AI software such as ChatGPT when performing writing services. So the company must disclose to the writer if any materials given to the writer have been generated by AI or incorporated AI material. And the WGA reserves the right to assert that exploitation of writer's material to train AI is prohibited by MBA or
0: other law. That's a big one. Yeah, that that yeah. ending there. Uh yeah, I mean I feel like they could have gone a little harder on AR cuz I just in for me it's kind of like a just no ever ever, but what I like about this is it sets it up to where a lot of the control is within the writers' uh responsibility and and um
1: and there's a and there's a
0: level of disclosure that yes to, and um, i i think
1: has to be included
0: well overall, I think that is one of the biggest things with this deal with the strike with everything right is mm-hmm. the this idea of disclosure of ai generated materials the disclosure of streaming numbers um uh you know like just the idea that these studios. Can't be withholding information the way that they have been in the past. Um,
1: so there's some compensation uh, minimums that have been added. I'm trying to find where they talked about uh, development rooms. Here it is
0: the the mini rooms.
1: Yeah, so development rooms, aka pre-greenlit rooms, and regular writers' rooms for television and HSB VOD series. Will now have requirements regarding the minimum number of writers who must be hired and the duration of their employment. These new provisions go to go into effect for seasons where the first episode is written after December 1st, 2023, assuming ratification in October, which apparently that has been done. So, for post-greenlit rooms, the following requirements are triggered dependent on the number of episodes ordered, unless a single writer is engaged to write all episodes. They include uh, a table there. Um, Writers in production for single-camera series made for HSB, VOD, or paid TV that are exclusively filmed in the U.S. and Canada. Two writer-producers must be employed... Or the lesser of 20 weeks of production, or the duration of the production, along with the showrunner.
0: Well, so that was a big part of the the whole mini-room thing, right? Is they would mm -hmm. hire a small staff of writers to do development, and then essentially there was like a high turnover rate. And these writers weren't getting these sort of minimums you know needed to sustain a career and and that was a big sticking point is like if you're hiring us for a writing room it's got to be for a writing room like you can't just be hiring us as these sort of like ad hoc again mini rooms to keep us from you know fulfilling our contractual agreements so that was a huge win for i mean Overall, it seems like the the Writers Guild won most of the big sticking points that they wanted.
1: Yeah, I can't find it in this exact article, but uh, I believe I read somewhere else that they are now uh, – streamers have to disclose yes. what uh, the mm-hmm. uh, per-streams are for per-episode – Whereas before, yeah. they that, that all could be a mystery. For all you knew, your show was doing fantastically well, but somebody canceled it because they didn't like you. you yeah. Know, or whatever. Or they bumped you for something else.
0: If your show's doing well, you should know that. <laughs> um, if it's not doing well, you should know that. Like, Yeah. Yeah. This, it, is, it,
1: this is what I read before. It says, under the new writer's agreement... Studios will have to provide streaming data to the WGA under NDA. Mm-hmm. Uh, they must provide the worldwide total number of hours streamed, and the WGA is then allowed to share the info with members in aggregated form.
0: So that's, that's huge. That's huge. I mean,
1: Cause before that information has been... Mystery.
0: Of all the things, I'm actually, that's one of the ones that I'm the most surprised they gave on. Mm -hmm. Um, But clearly, the AMPTP was just absolutely losing the PR campaign. It does not surprise me that the contract uh, that they came forward with was favorable for what uh, the WGA was Asking, it kind of surprised me how favorable it was. Like, yeah, they
1: well, they were really coming into crunch time because we we got to the point to where yeah, movies that were supposed to be out at the end of this year were now getting pushed to next year just so that they would have stuff to release because they we were starting to run out of of time for new projects to get greenlit.
0: Well, also, like I think. um You know, some of that was a negotiate... Like, I think some of that was a tactic on AMPTP's side. Like, delaying a big release like Dune was... Yeah. I think it was meant to be a statement of, like, no, that's fine. We got this in the bank. Like, we don't mind waiting to delay. How long can you guys last? And, uh, you know, hopefully... Alongside uh, the WGA, hopefully they um, come to the table with you know good faith negotiating terms for SAG-AFTRA because yeah. um, uh, you know unfortunately the industry can't move forward until uh, until that is resolved as well. But
1: I mean, it seems think, like this is going to be the windfall because all of these yeah. all of these unions are sort of working in tandem. They're taking notes from each other. Absolutely. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it, it's been... like,
0: I, I think the biggest show of solidarity in the Hollywood industry, and, and a lot of that is because of social media, it's because of, um, you know, the ability to organize and transparency that, due to technology, has not been available in this form before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't see the actor strike lasting much longer.
1: I don't either, especially now that this one is has yeah. kinda come and went. So well currently, right now, the actor strike is still going on, but I I think we're probably gonna be tapering off all it, of that. It would not be soon. surprised
0: it would not surprise me <laughs> if it was resolved by the time this is released. Like legally there's sort of an order that they have to do these things in, but um I can't see them holding out at this point uh for the actors guild uh, you know uh, the, the 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 group of people that is most often seen as the quote unquote talent you know I I can't see them having to wait much longer to uh, Well get they this.
1: at this point the actors can't even go on to the uh n- the night shows or whatever to promote their projects no so y- exactly you,
0: you you have the night shows back but yeah what are they gonna promote e- exactly it's it's uh that's that's what I'm saying i I think it will be resolved within a couple weeks at most
1: okay so uh one of the smaller stories has come it's a little rumor mill. But this was all over Twitter, so there might be – and the story wasn't, like, immediately discredited. um, But it says, according to Mr. Rumi, uh, Christopher Nolan is in talks to direct and write at least two James Bond films. They would be true to Fleming's adaptations set in the period they were written.
0: I am calling such bullshit on this. Mm-hmm. I think it is such a. I feel like Christopher Nolan has made his Bond movie right. Like he made Tenant. He he's made. Oh,
1: he's been trying to make it for since he did Batman Begins.
0: Absolutely. So I, but now with post Oppenheimer, I feel like to me it would seem like a backstep for Nolan. Uh, I don't think
1: for him it would.
0: No, I do. I do. I. T- to me, this sounds like such a... I don't know. This sounds like such a rumor to me. I put very little stock in this. Well, I mi- mean... Mr.
1: Rumi, it was who they're uh, uh, accrediting this source, is the editor-in-chief of World of, of Real. So he's a movie journo, but... You know I I don't know. I would not be surprised. I think he could make he could make the great American film, you know, or or whatever. You know, he he could win the Palme d'Or at Cannes Film Festival then go on to win the Oscar with something original. And then if if Bond came knocking, he would still answer because I think he has a little Bond Dork inside of him. That knows what Bond movie he wants to make, and I think he's going to feed the Bond dork.
0: I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical. I I, I know. No, like, I did
1: see one point that I thought was uh, uh, that I agreed with. It was somebody on Twitter. I forget who. Well, it,
0: they, is it the the Broccoli's? So so James Bond as a as a property is owned by the Broccoli. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, the estate. Yeah, no.
0: And, no. And, they are they are very notorious in Being very the protective. amount of control uh, that they exert over the way James Bond is portrayed and such and such and such and such. And I, I think that where Christopher Nolan is as a director right now, post Oppenheimer, I think it would be difficult to work within the... Um, creative constraints that the broccolis might present. Um, uh, yeah. Right, what were you gonna say?
1: I don't think so. I think depending on what he wanted to do, I don't think he's. I think you. I don't think he's gonna try and turn it into a time travel. You know, mind fuck. I. Just, I think he would just want to do some of his favorite. Uh, bond stories, you know.
0: I think it's just because they had a sex scene in Oppenheimer and they're like, oh, he can do the sex. Okay. Now he can do Bond. Which he is had arguable, Everything but actually. Actually. <laughs> the sex.
1: <laughs> <laughs> which is arguable. Um, yeah. No, the, the point that I saw that I kind of agreed with, which is more just sort of a critical point, was that Skyfall uh, by Sam Mendez was already sort of basically what it would be like if Christopher Nolan did a Bond movie. And so it'd be kind of redundant to see Bond done by actually Christopher Nolan.
0: I... I just think... I think that the they are ships passing in the night. I think the time for Christopher Nolan to do a, a Bond movie would have been like 2016... I think now he is sort of past it, and I think they are going to be looking into rebooting another uh, another franchise run because that's what Bond does. I, I I don't think I just can't see them genuinely entertaining the idea of doing a two picture period piece uh, that just doesn't seem like. What the Bond franchise has ever been about? Uh, it, it, they've always tried to keep it fairly modern, but in in its own, you know, in its own genre, its own head canon. Yeah, yeah. I just, I what I think they're going to want to do is they're going to want to get a young actor who's going to be attached to like a four or five year, you know, four or five movie contract, and. The directors are going to be a little more work for hire. That's kind of how Bond has always been, so i yeah, I am not putting a lot of stock in this
1: um if I were to have my vote, I would want to see uh Duncan Jones take over.
0: oh yeah, yeah, I like that
1: okay, the other that story... makes way
0: more sense to me. Just, like, where everybody's at in their career and where it is in the cultural zeitgeist, that that clicks in a way that... I just think Christopher Nolan's too big.
1: I don't think there's such a thing as too big.
0: He made almost a billion dollars off of a, you know, a biopic. Uh, like, I just... I don't... off of almost his name alone. Like, mm-hmm. I think... I I can see why there would be interest. I just... I think it would be wrapped up in production hell and there would just be too many sort of conflicting visions that by the end of it, it'll it'll just sort of fade away.
1: All right. Uh, the other story is Warner Brothers has uh, had conversations recently about developing a Rick and Morty movie. Speaking of redundant, given that Rick and Morty is based on Doc and Marty from Back to the Future. Uh, Also, there's the whole Justin Roiland
0: issue. Yeah. Well, not, it's no, it's not an issue. They fired him. He's done. Um,
1: They're still running the show and they say they can run it forever. They're talking like Simpsons level forever.
0: Yeah. uh, Which, so, um, Actually, I think without Justin Roiland attached to it, it has way more potential. Mm. I think he was kind of slowing things down um, uh, because he was the star. He was doing like 60% of the voice characters. I don't know if you've seen the trailer for Rick and Morty, the, the new season. The the first post-Justin season, um, they just revealed the trailer for anybody who's not aware of the situation, they won't miss a beat. Like it, the voices sound so much the same that like Yeah. I'm sorry. I I just to me they're indistinguishable. Like I I get that he was I mean, they're not was... the
1: hardest cartoon voices to do.
0: No. I I it to me it's kind of funny how replaceable he seems right now. Um, I I, I saw somebody tweet like, you know, everybody has at least two friends within their group that can do all the voices on Rick and Morty. And I think that's the case. So I, I, I think the show has only been getting better um, as it's been going on, as they've looped in more writers, as it's become more, uh, detached from sort of the original concept of what if you know uh back to the future but doc brown was a raging alcoholic and a, a cynical asshole and um you know marty was a, a horny teenager like yeah i think it has progressed so far beyond the first season that i'm here for it like until Until it starts slipping with animation, generally, I'm like, yeah, let's see where we can go. I think a movie actually makes a lot of sense with Rick and Morty. It's always been more cinematic than a lot of adult cartoons. And I think they could do something on a scale that would be worthy of a motion picture. Um, You know, whereas a lot of other adult cartoons, it's like, okay, well, this is, A family sitcom but the movie version this is like no it makes sense they've always played with genre and these high sort of sci-fi concepts and i think it would be really fun to see what they could do with a movie budget
1: yeah so i was looking over the article to see if they were talking a live action version or if they were talking a uh Just an extended animated
0: episode, basically. I would assume, yeah, animated.
1: Like the uh, Simpsons movie or the Bob's Burgers movie. And that's probably what they're talking about. You know, if I'm being 100, if I'm being a buck 50, I've never been the biggest Rick and Morty guy. I gave it a shot. I watched like a season and a half and I was nonplussed by most of it. I thought it was like nerd shit 101 it was like robot chicken level humor but with okay animation and sort of obnoxious characters now i hear it got better beyond that point but i just didn't care enough to follow up with it
0: that's all, i i think all of your assessment is pretty fair um
1: also i i, I always kind of thought it was like Poor man's Venture Brothers.
0: That I definitely agree with. I think Venture Brothers has always been more tapped into the genre parody without feeling like parody, and yeah. I it, I I think that Rick and Morty t- more often than not leads into pastiche. Um, well, and, and pastiche and um. Peeling back the, 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 um, breaking the fourth wall. Like, they'll literally call genre tropes out as genre tropes. And I think something like, uh, Venture Brothers, where they totally buy into the reality 100% is always going to be more satisfying. Um, and the, yeah,
1: I, I remember they are pulling from things, it's from really unexpected, weird sources. But, Having David Bowie and Klaus Nomi be, <laughs> but the
0: but bad they also guys. like they also do it in a way where it's like, yeah, that's actually David Bowie, right? And he just happened to be, you know, the the sovereign. Like they do it in a way that is less, less tongue in cheek, less. Yeah, there's there's just there's no yeah. winking at the camera. It's like all of the stuff exists in universe. Whereas Rick and Morty is like, there's an awareness that it's a TV show. Well, uh, that it's... being said, I think it does pick up. I I want to say like around the end of the second season, third season, because um, I agree with you. I think the, for, the first little bit is kind of whatever. Um, it, it's, you know, it's kind of just sort of like, If you like Futurama, you'll probably like this. Um,
1: Okay, yeah. And I would assume it's been going on for years and years, so I would assume that that would be the case.
0: Um, Yeah, this is the seventh season, I think.
1: Yeah, but I I also had similar issues when Community started. I just kind of think there's sort of a a Dan Harmon thing where he always goes for the low-hanging fruit of whatever he's doing, and I'm always just kind of like, okay, like I was making these jokes in middle school. Like you just uh, <laughs> you just gave it a budget.
0: I mean, you know, kudos to him for doing that for for finding the you know the people to make money off of it. But yeah. um, but I agree. I also wasn't that into Community. I I think um, com you know, Community. I think had like maybe two and a half good seasons out of a what five season run. Um I I have always preferred Rick and Morty though. I think it it finds itself in a way that community couldn't because of um other production issues. Like once community really found its voice it started falling apart.
1: Right, yeah. Which is a whole separate issue yeah
0: but 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 i feel like rick and morty is um the writers they have right now and i i really think they haven't released the the post roylan season yet um but based off the trailer i think uh it, it seems like they're shaking off some dead weight all right
1: All right. Well, that is all I have for the movie news. So we can go ahead now and start talking about the ice storm, which is our homework. Had I known that uh, we were going to be heading into October with this episode, I would have made it a little bit more appropriate. But
0: yeah, this is a this is a Thanksgiving movie. It's, it
1: very much so, yes.
0: And it's it's literally yeah, like takes place over the Thanksgiving holiday.
1: Ah, uh, but yeah, why why don't you go ahead and uh, describe the uh, goings on of of this film?
0: Ah, uh, yeah. So the ice storm is about um a couple of families uh, that are neighbors with uh w- you know within small radius in Connecticut. Families consist of Kevin Klein, Joan Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Toby McGuire, Christina Ricci, Elijah Wood, uh, and uh, Jamie Sheridan. Um, make up these two families, you know, within the suburban environment. People are growing up and, gro- and moving on. Toby McGuire is at a private school. Uh, he is brother to Christina Ricci. Um, their parents are Joan Allen and Kevin Klein, Um, who are, you know, after many years of marriage, sort of uh hitting uh an icy patch. <laughs> Pun very much intended. Um, Their their marriage is a little rocky, um, and Kevin Klein has been having an affair with the neighbor uh, Sigourney Weaver, uh, who is uh, the mother of Elijah Wood and um, Adam Hound Bird. Their father seems to be traveling a lot for business as suburban families are, these families are close. Um, you know, they hang out, they have parties, all the kids know each other. Um, uh, you know, Christina Ricci and Elijah Wood are kind of hooking up, uh, as well as her developing a strange relationship with the younger brother. Um, And all of these sort of individual family dramas start to come to a head uh, the night after Thanksgiving, where an ice storm comes into town and uh, has unintended consequences for the evening.
1: Yeah, it sort of forces everybody into these difficult conversations or these difficult realities they otherwise have been trying to ignore. Yeah. Um, so this is directed by Ang Lee. Uh, this is a movie that um, was one of many that you know built him up in a big way in in American filmmaking. Uh, and it takes place in the seventies. This is re- was released in ninety seven, and in the mid nineties, there was a sort of a fascination with seventies nostalgia.
0: Well, uh, I mean, it, you know, it makes sense. You have a lot of these sort of younger directors who are now coming into the industry and they're, you know, sort of portraying the time period that they're familiar with. It's it's like why there's kind of a fascination with 80s and 90s culture sure. in, in movies today. Like, it, it just makes sense. Uh, you know, in 15 years, you're going to have... Gen Z directors who are depicting post-9-11 life, which will be weird.
1: I think we've already sort of started to see that. I mean, Lady Bird takes place in, like, what? It takes place in, like,
0: 2002 or something? No, yeah, but you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, yeah, but but the idea of, like, when does a period film become a period film instead of a well, it,
0: contemporary film? I guess it's film. more like once... Uh, because right now our generation is sort of taking over filmmaking. Um, once the younger generation completely sort of takes that over, that will be strange.
1: Yeah. But you know, Angley not being an American filmmaker and making a very specifically American story about uh a very specific type of American family, these sort of upper middle class, Connecticut, collegiate uh mm-hmm. uh upper crust folk who suburbanites yeah. yeah suburbanites living outside of the the city areas but um who are you know and this is on the eve of uh the Watergate scandal so there's mm-hmm. like that happening in the background which is kind of like you know this idea of like Um, lies and secrets being revealed it's like sort of a theme that sort of comes up in 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 the story
0: Uh, yeah and and uh christina ricci you know specifically she's sort of playing this young liberal you know who's always sort of trying to stay in touch with the news where a lot you know there. Also, this movie is talking about this sort of generational differences, like right. um, the differences with relationships and specifically sexual relationships. Right. But uh, this is like
1: post, like the post, the hippie era. And you kind of get the idea that, you know, these people, they, they sort of missed out on the hippie era because yeah. they were going to college and because they're very well off. And
0: they uh, but they're a little more sexually adventurous like right. you they're, know they're kind key, of trying key it parties on. and
1: they're sort of trying it on like an outfit like you know all the, the yeah. cool people from LA have these key parties and are trying swinging and maybe mm-hmm. we're sexually liberated even though everybody just does not seem comfortable with it when they're dealing with the realities of the situation Well,
0: yeah it, it, when dealing with the emotional reality of you know a marriage with multiple children and neighbors that you've been friends with for years like right. sex is going to complicate that
1: yeah and it's and the the free love does not uh actually manifest itself as being particularly free it feels very much like uh people sort of jockeying for position
0: but what well, <laughs> well, it, it, it's funny because there's a i i think there's kind of a similar thing with that now with um with the idea of uh um open relationships and i'm not saying that all open relationships are like this like obviously you know people can define relationships on their own terms and mm-hmm. i'm sure some open relationships are very successful um but especially with Kevin Klein, uh his character, there's this sort of idea of the the guy who wants to be outside of his marriage because he thinks he sort of has a, a sexual currency that doesn't exist uh mm. like you know it, but as soon as that sort of turns the tables it makes him uncomfortable like again when you're dealing with relationships and sex and love like shit gets complicated and when you have a
1: when you have kids involved especially kids who know 15
0: each other. 20 year history yeah. yeah
1: um what i like about the movie and what i think uh, it sort of harkens back to sort of like the the Cirque and melodramas Mm -hmm. Um, even though the, the, they could never be as lurid or as frank about these subjects. Um, it sort of builds on those sort of premises of, you know, uh, uh, internal, uh, familial angst and, uh, you know, the, the roles and positions that society tries to box you in and how comfortable are you with them and how comfortable are you stepping away from them and, what have you. So it's sort of like those kind of melodramas sort of filtered through sort of the the sensibility of like 70s filmmakers like Robert Altman or um, Paul Mazursky. I thought a lot about his films um, and oh, the guy who made Harold Amat.
0: Uh, okay, yeah. Um, yeah.
1: It's not coming to mind, but... Uh, that filmmaker as well. Um, they they were all kind of you know they grew up on those like melodramas and were sort of like doing their version of it through like the countercultural lens. And this is sort of that through the lens of a non American sort of looking in. Mm, mm-hmm. um, you do get that sort of Eastern feel. Every once in a while of how you know the the storm itself sort of comes to symbolize the the internal pressures of these families, and there's a little bit more cinematic poetry than you would normally get in like a gritty seventies melodrama or a fifties overwrought melodrama uh but. Yeah, I think that there's definitely sort of a conversation within a conversation within a conversation happening here.
0: Yeah, but uh, on top of that, I I definitely agree with what you're saying about this sort of um, uh, uh, filmic poetry um, mm. that does have this sort of Eastern sensibility. But I feel like as far as a melodrama goes... There could be more drama. Um, a lot of these sort of stories don't necessarily come to, come to sort of a, a, a head the way that you would think they will. Um, there are times when some of the characters are a little too rational. And a little too. There are conversations that seem seemingly resolve and desert uh, diffuse situations in a way that I do think betrays the genre a little bit. Like I think there there could have played into that a little bit more. Um, I I think I I think there's this interesting sort of tug of war with this movie between melodrama and naturalism, and. I didn't always know which would win out.
1: I, I I think I get what you're saying. I think the difference between, you know, the traditional melodrama, which is all about, you know, creating these high stakes emotional responses between the characters and then letting that play out. Um, and then a movie like this is that you're dealing with characters that are repressed And also forcing themselves into a civility that's unnatural to the circumstance. And I think that's part of the story.
0: I agree with you. But I, I think that part of that is I watching this movie, I wanted to see the characters change in a way that, that allowed them to sort of break out of that. And that kind of, doesn't happen in in any sort of satisfying uh, way but oh, I think I, by
1: the third act I mean I don't, I'm not going to spoil you know yeah. what happens but I I think that there is a moment of resolution where we know where our key players are sort of set back in the frame
0: yeah yeah I mean
1: yeah. or when things are when things are contextualized for them and they're finally able to see th- through uh their own personal Bullshit. wants and <laughs> desires yeah their own neurosis and and able to actually come together as a family unit a functional family yeah. unit yeah Um, there's, you know, there's one big emotional release in the film that I think sort of surplants what would normally be multiple. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's part of the, that filtration process that happened there, you know, like, because if you look at like the films from the seventies that were sort of influenced by the melodrama, like uh Hal Ashby being the director that I was trying to think of earlier. Um his movies or 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 Paul Mazursky's uh uh Bob and Carol Ted and Alice, which is like a swingers uh comedy of errors. You look you look at like that 70 sensibility basically saying like there's no point in emotionally investing because it doesn't matter in the end, anyways. Because uh, everybody's uh, in for it for themselves, whether they want to be or not. And I think that Ang Lee is actually ch- stepping in out of frame, you know, out of out of the context of that American tradition and and kind of taking that. 70 cynicism and bringing in that that uh metaphorical say like you know maybe there is something here that's worth fighting for worth saving
0: mhm
1: mhm um and i found the, the the performances to be compelling throughout um i mean kevin klein's been playing this guy his entire career
0: um, I but he also does it better than anybody else. This sort of pompous, collegiate, educated fool, uh, right? Who's who doesn't who, who's like book smart but has literally no like. Uh, again, he just it is so within his wheelhouse that he does it better than anybody else. Like I, I loved the sort of ongoing joke about how no, like none of the women wanted to hear him talk. Like, just <laughs> please just shut up for a minute.
1: Right. Yeah. Which is clearly all that he's really interested in.
0: He yeah. Was, yeah. Was, I was mean, just kind he, of
1: waxing philosophical on being heard.
0: Uh, yeah.
1: Um, and where he feels most ignored um his uh, uh Joan Allen as his wife is is really good here
0: uh I, I always confuse her with Michelle Fairley uh Michelle Fairley who most people would recognize as Caitlyn Stark from Game of Thrones they look um, identical to me
1: so she did the ice storm in 97 and then she did pleasantville playing a very similar character yeah in a very similar role in
0: 98
1: i mean this is like wasn't that, that
0: also with toby maguire
1: yeah and i really i really enjoyed uh, toby maguire's relationship with Christina ricci they have this this very unique sort of um i don't know they're do like they're in their own movie mm-hmm. like they're doing his girl friday
0: well what's what's interesting is uh, I think they only have one scene together but they felt more uh more familial than anybody else and I, yeah I think that was like really cool and and really well done like there's this there's this friendship between the siblings that literally does not translate to any single other character or any other
1: relationship in the movie yeah yeah it's the only it's the only place where they feel like they're equals or mm-hmm. they're you know intellectually capable of each other and they're kind of like on the same wavelength and they have this uh yeah this bond this interesting bond like we we hear them talk on the phone a couple times too they they refer to each other by different names and um
0: yeah,
1: yeah i don't know it, it was a a fun there, there's relationship a, there
0: there's a shorthand between the characters that i appreciate the the both the you know the script and the directors didn't need to elaborate on like mm-hmm. like you, you know just the way they play off of each other was really fun and natural
1: mm-hmm. um so Gordon weaver's greatness uh, I, I mean, all the all the principal leads are really good i really liked even really Is- new- minor characters like, uh, Alison Janney. In <laughs> yeah. Movie.
0: She's a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, Henry Zerny is great. Um, mm-hmm. uh, a smaller part, but Jamie Sheridan, uh, man, he is, I think kind of underrated here. Um, you know, he, most people would probably recognize most people of our generation, would probably recognize him as Randall Flag from the TV miniseries in the '90s. Um, oh,
1: right, right, yeah.
0: He, yeah, he, had yeah. Like
1: two scenes in the movie, but he's, he's, yeah, he's good. He's very they're,
0: good. They're very powerful scenes. Yeah. Um,
1: David Crumholtz has a really small but impactful <laughs> character, kind of playing yeah. against type, is like. He's the cool guy in the only universe where he would get to be the cool guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And even um, Adam uh, Han Bird, who plays Elijah Wood's younger brother, I think the only other big movie he was in was Jumanji.
0: It was driving me nuts. What like how I recognized him, but yeah, he plays the young Robin Williams in Jumanji. Yeah, um, but yeah, he's he's actually really good in this.
1: Yeah, and he gets a ton to do and some very like difficult material yeah. to 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 work around.
0: A, yeah, a um, lot of. Well, I mean, he's the youngest character, and he's sort of coming into age in a way that none of the other characters are. And he is more than anybody else still this boy who is, like, wanting to transition to manhood. And there's some there's some interesting uh, situations that arise out of that. Yeah. I... Is this the hottest that Sigourney Weaver has ever been in a movie? or is it just cuz I'm old now? <laughs> I I
1: think she's very good looking. This was a good this was a good time period for her. This uh, is,
0: I mean she's always she's still gorgeous. Uh yeah. but I was like, "Damn, Sigourney Weaver, you could get it."
1: Oh, they know what they're <laughs> doing. They they cast her appropriately and yeah.
0: yeah she's yeah. playing
1: up to a type for sure. I mean, Absolutely. And and between this and and, and Galaxy Quest, I would say yeah.
0: Yeah. It's Corny Weaver.
1: <laughs> She's, you know, a Hollywood actress. She's beautiful.
0: You know what? She might be on my Mount Rushmore of crushes, now that I think about it. <laughs> have you seen the thing going around Twitter that's like, who's on your Mount Rushmore of crushes? Yeah, I have. Yeah. I <laughs> might have to reevaluate that. I might
1: have to bump somebody for, for middle-aged Corny Weaver.
0: I think, yeah. I mean... <laughs> My list is like Jillian Anderson and Kate Blanchett, so, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, you kind, of have a, you kind of have a thing, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I recommend this movie. I mean, this movie's been well-known for a long time. It was up for a bunch of awards when it first came out. There was a series of sort of this type of film at this time. I mentioned well, Pleasantville, but this I would say leads into where well, this crests with uh, American Beauty.
0: Yeah, Um, that's what I was gonna say. Is I I feel like this develops into a more sort of Hollywood version with like American Beauty and Crash and like Little Children. Yeah, yeah, and there's a I think there's a more earnestness to this sort of time period for that um, where it's not it doesn't feel like awards baby in any way it just it just feels like it's interested in exploring character and and drama and it's done you know very competently with a great cast and uh I agree if you like
1: i like the time period i like the setting we talked a little bit about the costume um it, and it
0: almost feels uh like a like a Broadway like it was translated from a script or something like a Broadway play like
1: I might be I know it's based on a book it, there might have been a play let me see actually
0: because uh, it, it just there's a there's a few like scenes that you know and they're all sort of within these two houses Mm. um, a couple of outdoor scenes like it just it sort of feels that like sort of um, stage play script writing
1: Uh, so there was a novel by Ricky by Rick Moody uh, adapted by James Seamus but I don't see anything about a play but that doesn't mean there hasn't been since then Um, I would also say I'll adapt it (laughs) go for it uh, I would also say that this this feels sort of like a precursor or I would be very surprised if uh this was not heavily researched when uh Noah Bombach was writing The Squid and the Whale, because to me this movie feels very much in conversation with that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I Yeah, I agree. A definitely early sh- like
1: the early well, uh, I mean, I mean, you Bombac can feel stuff. the
0: influence of something like this on someone like Noah Baumbach, who is is trying to sort of take it away from from that sort of American beauty-ness of it, um, from the blockbuster nature of it, right, and sort of strip it back down to the family genre. I I think you can also feel that in uh, uh, Wes Anderson's earlier work, like The Royal Tenenbaums and uh, and the stuff and he wrote, rocket.
1: and the stuff he wrote with Bombek,
0: yeah, yeah, like i I you can feel this kind of this sort of ivy league, yeah, you know uh, drama turge play uh mm. set as film,
1: right it not quite as satirical as those, but uh it uh sort of belongs in that camp, that world, yeah. Alright, uh, well that is that and for next week, what are we going to be doing for the
0: uh, streaming homework? We are going to be watching Layer of the White Worm! <laughs> uh, Layer of the White Worm uh, which is currently streaming on Tubi.
1: Yes and it came in on 1988 and is a Ken Russell film I have not seen, so We'll get into that. Cool. And if anybody has anything to say about anything we've discussed on this episode or previous, you can reach out to us at our email at mcguffinpod at gmail.com or uh, follow us on all the social medias, uh, Instagram and Twitter at mcguffinpod. We're also on... Uh, TikTok, and we have a YouTube channel at Pod. Just in the search bar, look up Pod; It'll pull it up. There's two different MacGuffins because one's from when they were um, doing interviews with other directors and stuff, and then the other one's just the podcast. And we're on Letterboxd as well. If you want to follow what we're watching for the streaming homeworks or want to suggest something to us, Uh, You can do that as well. And be sure to leave us a star rating and a one-sentence review on whatever your podcast app of choice is, whether it be Spotify or Google Podcasts or iTunes. Uh, Please leave us some sort of feedback there. And uh, if you do watch one of our video versions of the podcast, uh, they're time stamped, so if you want to skip around or just watch certain reviews or whatever, you can. And be sure to leave a comment or a question or something there. Also, you can follow me individually at VCCassidy on Twitter and Instagram. I'm also on Blue Sky. I'm also on Threads. I'm on whatever it's going to be next, trying to figure this out like the rest of us. <laughs> you haven't already be sure to visit the mcguff.in to read the other articles and reviews by the rest of the mcguffin staff
0: uh you can follow me on twitter and instagram and i am also on blue sky at keith foster kid uh also i perform improv at mockingbird improv i'm part of the show's improv versus stand-up and lyrics and laughs um Uh, So, you know, check out MockingbirdImprov.org for their calendar and schedule and come see a show.
1: Okay, and that is the end of the podcast.
0: It appeals the living have been killed by a ghost, but I do not believe in such things. That is quite the accent. You know what? Uh, When we did Murder on the Orient Express the the cast and crew we were, like all went to you know hang out at a bar after one of the shows and one of the cast members husband was french and he said my accent was the best okay it's been a while since i've
1: done it bye